Professor Lina Gassianidou's research is focused on ancient technology and specifically the production and trade of Cypriot copper through antiquity and the impact of this industry on the Cypriot landscape and environment. She currently teaches environmental archaeology at the University of Cyprus, where she serves as vice chair of the Department of History and Archaeology. She is also a member of the Cyprus National Commission for UNESCO. Most recently, she was elected corresponding member of the Archaeological Institute of America. Uh, Lena, thank you so much for accepting my invitation and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. I wanted to start off by reading a, a short quote from Aristotle and Dioscorides. You know, though, granted, we got to approach some of this information with caution. He does write, and I quote, Towards the northern parts of Cyprus and in relation to the sea, it has various mines of gold and silver and copper and stipteria, split and white and true stipteria, and sori and yeast of gold and missy, chalcitis and other metals. In other mountains of Cyprus, they say that there is iron and glass in every precious metal. Dioscorides writes, the stone, amiantos, is produced in Cyprus with which the people there, by processing it, manufacture textiles because, of its full of, because it is full of fibers. When it is placed in fire, it burns and produces flames, but it comes up more shiny and unburned. And of course, he's referring to asbestos. What can that quote, whether accurate or not, what can it tell listeners about Cyprus's natural resources? Well, um, this is one of a number of references to Cyprus's uh, mineral wealth. And, and Cyprus was well known for its mineral wealth, uh, mainly for copper ore deposits, but for many other things, because we must remember that minerals were used also for medicine and, and uh, medic medicinal purposes, uh, for art. So, um, and the variety of minerals that he quotes are, are things that would have been used in other processes as well, not just copper production, but also gold work and others. The main um, discrepancy, let's say, uh, is the reference to gold and silver, which according to modern geology, uh, there would not have been uh, deposits of gold and silver that the ancients would have been able to um, exploit. Uh, in, in modern times, Cyprus did produce copper, uh, sorry, gold and silver, uh, but it's because of the modern technique that was used to extract these precious metals. And they were at such low levels that in antiquity, they would not have been able to, to get the, the metal out. But everything else, even, even the location of where he says the copper mines is probably referring to the copper mine of uh, Scuriotisa and Trodos, um, is, is accurate. And I think it helps to show, and of course, asbestos, the other, the other reference you said, Cyprus, the top of Trodos Mountains is practically, is, is full of asbestos. And it used to be one of the modern uh, industries of the island until asbestos was... Uh, bound for uh, health reasons. Uh, so th th there is truth in these uh, texts and they knew very well about Cyprus's mineral wealth. And, and so did uh, the people who read them in antiquity and so did the people who read them in modern times. So it's these ancient texts that eventually brought modern prospectors to the island and restarted the modern industry. Now your work 
deals with with specifically the the mineral extraction and production on Cyprus. It's called archaeometallurgy. Do you mind explaining what archaeometallurgy is to listeners and what exactly it is that you study? This is a field that that initially started with the study of the technology of of the production of metals. So starting with the mining uh, and then the uh, smelting where you you treat the minerals because um, metals are chemically bound to other elements that you need to separate them from these. Uh, so you need to process them in furnaces. Uh, so archaeometallurgy was this, it, and still is, the field that focuses on this uh, production of, of metals from all the different stages and, of course, up to the, uh, the transformation of, of raw metal into finished objects. In, in more recent times, archaeometallurgy has taken a broader uh, scope and has tried to, to include studies on the organization of the production, landscape archaeology, how this has affected the landscape, the raw materials that were used, the trading networks. Um, so it has become a much more interdisciplinary study where we look at uh, the production of metals, how they have affected the landscape, how they affected the, the societies that produced them, uh, what kind of networks were built so that, because there's not, uh, not every place has uh, metal deposits, metal sources. So they would, they had to create trading networks so that they could get access to these metals. So archaeometallurgy looks at all this uh, right now. And of course, to do this, you have collaboration. You need chemical analysis. You need a macroscopic analysis, statistical analysis, and, and many other things. There's uh, anthropologists who are looking now, for example, at the human remains around mining regions, trying to understand how the health of the people who worked in the mines were affected. Um, so it's, it's quite a fascinating field, in my opinion. Uh, and one that is particularly important for Cyprus because uh, the copper production and trade is what really affected the development of the local culture throughout time. Well, throughout time, from the time they discovered how to produce the metal until they stopped. Uh, and they stopped completely uh, in late antiquity. Uh, until modern times when modern prospectors came back to take advantage of, of the, the richness of the, of the earth. And this field work is, is um, or rather this field is, is more or less new in a sense. And, and the reason why I say that is because in, a, in a, a, an article of yours that I read, you point out, and here's a quote from you, only a handful of articles have been published on ancient mines of Cyprus. So this does sound like a, um, like it's a new frontier in a sense by shifting the focus to the study of ancient mines themselves instead of just generically on the on copper trade. Well, the fact is that in Cyprus, a, a lot of work has been done on Cypriot metallurgy. So archaeometallurgy, in terms of Cypriot archaeometallurgy, this has been going on for a long time, since the 70s. It, it, the only thing that was lacking until recently was a focus on the first step of the production, which is looking at the ancient mines. So wow. where they go and get the, the ores and minerals from the ground. 
otherwise, um, already from the very beginning, let's say when scientific archaeology started on the island and they started excavations and settlements and things, it was very obvious that uh, copper production and metallurgy was very important. In the 70s, when the field of archaeometallurgy really took off, all the, the, the main figures, let's say, the main players uh, who worked in this soap, uh, Ronnie Tilecoat, who was a professor in London, James Muley, Bob Madden, uh, they all, uh, Hans-Gerd Bachmann, um, they all uh, looked at material from Cyprus. What has changed uh, in the last, uh, since the 90s, let's say, uh, is this, this focus an introduction of, of the study of the landscape. And this is with large scale projects, some of them initiated with Bernard Knapp. Uh, so um, the study of, of, uh, of the metallurgy, but through the study of the landscape and the effect on the landscape and a diachronic study, which enabled us to understand better because a lot of the material that had been previously studied came from um, the excavation of urban centers. Um, while uh, it, it was uh, clear that one had to look in, in the areas where the copper was produced. So we now know a lot more, but there's still a lot to know for the very first steps, the mining. The problem with studying the mining, the ancient mining, is that most ancient mines have been destroyed because the modern techniques since the 60s is open cast mining, which means that they blast with explosives the, the, the sediments and the rocks, and then large um, machinery moves in and digs out. So eventually where you would have a mountain where veins of, of copper ore or whatever were there, and in antiquity they would have been removed through uh, underground galleries. Now the whole mountain is removed. So everything is gone. Um, so we need to look at uh, archival material to try and understand how the, the technology of the mining. Uh, we have a lot of information on the technology of the production of the smelting, but we're now trying to get to the mining part of the of the copper production state. Which is I find incredibly fascinating to understand the the ground zero of of cop the copper industry. Um, which we are going to talk about and what I'm thinking we can do to, to begin with is just talk about the copper uh, industry and, and its origins in Cyprus and in the Bronze Age. So um, I, I suppose I want to start off by asking uh, two questions. And the first question is, when can we confidently date the foundations of the Cypriot copper industry? And the second follow-up, which is very closely related, is how extensive was this copper trade in the Mediterranean, or how extensive would it become? First of all, the earliest metallic artifacts on the island date to the Chalcolithic period, so around 3,500 BC. There are only a few, only a handful, so really some ornaments, a few small pieces. This is really the, the, just the beginning. Uh, we can be confident that copper production and smelting started in the early Bronze Age, so around 2500 BC, but it really took off after 2000 uh, BC. In the first, we, we can be confident that it, it started uh, in the early Bronze Age because we start 
while we have, let's say, a total of 20 metal artifacts from the Chalcolithic periods from several centuries and, and different sites, once you enter the, the early Bronze Age, so after 2500 BC, you start having a number of metal artifacts in each tomb, in each burial. Uh, we know most of our information from, from burials, but they have enough metal that they are willing to put metal artifacts in the grave. In, in, after the second millennium, so after 2000 BC, when we move into the Middle Bronze Age, then we have a wealth of information uh, that shows that Cyprus not only started to produce copper for its own use, but started to export uh, copper modestly at this time. What is this evidence? We have in many Middle Bronze Age sites molds for the production of objects that look like ingots. Ingots means it, it's a standardized form uh, that uh, where that metal is cast in for trade. Um, in this period, they're small. They're only less than half a kilo each. Some of them are um, bar-shaped. Many uh, believe that some of the axes that have a perforated butt were also a, a type of ingot. But also for this, uh, from around 1900 to 1800 BC, we start having uh, references in texts of the Near East that refer to a place called Alashia, where copper is um, exp from where copper is imported. So um, these two evidence, the, the, the sets of evidence, the, the finds from the excavations from the necropolis, the, the number of metal artifacts really booms, they, they put in a lot of metal artifacts in the tombs, uh, and the evidence from the settlements that have been excavated, and then the evidence from the um, texts of the neighboring countries show that Cyprus has started not only to produce a lot of copper for its own use, but also for uh, exporting, modestly at this point. Once we move into the late Bronze Age, so from 1600 to about 1050, this uh, really uh, this production really takes off, and we have large-scale production of copper, and we can and export. And, and I think the best evidence for this is that instead of having these small ingots that maybe maximum may weigh up to one kilo, you start having ingots of copper that weigh 25 kilos, and they are starting to be exported on a large scale. So it's, it's a slow process, and this slow process has to do with the fact that the technology had to be developed. The Cypriot copper ores are sulfidic, so they need a complicated process. It's not as simple as uh, smelting other types of ore. But once, once they master this technology, it really takes, takes over and, and it becomes the main source of copper. It doesn't mean that uh, copper was not produced in other areas. There was a great need and demand for copper. So wherever there were copper ore deposits, they would have been ex uh, exploited. But Cyprus was very actively producing and exporting to all the region. Now, where, where has Cypriot copper been found? Now, I do know that it's been 
confidently found in as far away as Sardinia. Uh, it's been speculated that even as far as way as far away as Scandinavia. Now, obviously, that's not from direct trade. But my question here is, um, how do we know it's Cypriot? How do, how do you scientifically deduce whether they're actually from Cyprus? Okay, so first of all, uh, in this period, the late Bronze Age, um, a very particular shape of ingot, which is called the oxhide ingot, um, is, is, uh, appears. Um, and it, it's like a rectangular shape with pro protruding uh, ends. And it was called oxhide ingot because it reminded archaeologists that it looked like um, an ox's hide that was being stretched. These ingots have been, had been found initially in Sardinia, in Crete in great numbers, and in Cyprus. And then they started appearing elsewhere in the Peloponnese, in Mycenae, um, in, uh, in a the, one of the biggest discoveries was a shipwreck in off the coast of Turkey that was found in the 60s. This was Cape Gelidonia. Then another shipwreck was found in the 90s um, at Uluburun, and that was carrying more than 300 such ingots. Um, and such ingots have been found now in Bulgaria, in, um, in the capital city of the Hittites, off the coast of, uh, of Palestine. Uh, a fragment in Egypt. So there's a, quite a wide distribution of this type of ingots. Initially, they thought that they may have been produced in Crete and in Sardinia and in Cyprus, but Crete doesn't have copper, uh, copper deposits. Sardinia does have. But then with lead isotope analysis, uh, it was shown, this is a very specific and detailed type of analysis where you you analyze the ore deposits, you get the fingerprints, so the characteristics of this ore deposit. Then you analyze um, the artifacts and you compare. And if they too match, then there's a good chance that the copper came from that specific ore deposit. And this analysis showed that almost all, all, no, all the oxide ingots dating after uh, 1450 BC were produced with Cypriot copper. There were earlier ones that are produced with copper that we still don't know where it's coming from, and those had been found on Crete. So, and since then, whenever uh, such an oxide ingot is found and analysis is being done, it matches the fingerprint of Cyprus, and in particular, an area, uh, a mining area, which is the area of Skuriotis, Apliki, and Mavrovun. We have, we have uh, uh, let's say, depictions. And in, in Scandinavia, because you mentioned Scandinavia, lead isotope is used to, to identify the source of, of metals. And they found some of the metal artifacts. They didn't find ingots in Sardinia, in Scandinavia, but they found that some, a few, not a lot, a few metal artifacts from this period match the, the fingerprint uh, from Cyprus. That's, uh, that's mind-blowing to just think how extensive some of this, these trade networks were. Yes, uh, you have to remember ago. that we know that they were in contact with Scandinavia because we have amber, the, the 
A-M-B-E-R, amber, the, the resin, the, the fossilized resin, which comes from the Baltic Sea. We have jewelry made of amber already in the Mycenaean tombs. So there was contact. It doesn't really necessarily mean that a Cypriot with Cypriot copper made it all the way up to Scandinavia, but Cypriot copper down the line eventually made it all the way up there. Which makes me wonder, what were what were Cypriots getting in return? I mean, what were they trading for? So, um, and, and not necessarily amber, but uh, there, there certainly must have been other products that Cyprus was lacking that they were in demand of. Of course. Uh, first of all, uh, as I said before, although there's references to gold and silver from Cyprus, there was not, uh, there would not have been a local production of gold and silver. And gold and silver were a very important status symbol. And gold was not necessary as, as copper was to make tools and other things, but it was a, a status symbol to have because it was always a symbol of wealth. Um, so they would have needed to trade copper for gold. The same with silver, which was also a precious metal. And silver being slightly less precious than gold was always... Uh, even in pre-monetary society, so before the invention of coinage, um, the value of materials and even uh, services was um, put against the value of silver. So silver was very important. Then tin, because we speak about copper, but in fact, we mustn't forget that what they made their tools with is not pure copper. They always used to mix copper with something else so that it would become harder and so that it would melt at lower temperatures. In the earliest phases of the Bronze Age, this was arsenic, which was available locally, but in the, after, in the, in the second millennium, so after 2000 BC, uh, slowly what uh, takes over is the alloy of copper with tin, and this is bronze. So Cyprus had abundant uh, uh, copper, but they still needed to import tin to turn copper into bronze to make the objects that they wanted. So they too had to be connected in networks where they would send out um, copper and bring in gold, silver, and tin, and of course, many other things. The other thing that we tend to forget is that trade of uh, organic materials was just as important. Fabrics, textiles, for example, some textiles were very expensive and very valued. Um, dyes or um, other perfume. So there's lots of things that they would have wanted to bring in um, in exchange for the copper. You mentioned gold and silver as currency. Would copper uh, fit in that category as, as a form of currency as well? Could we, is it, would it be fair to, to think of it like that? Yes and no. I mean, the ingots definitely were not a form of currency. They were not so standardized. Gold and silver is always the one against which the value is, is measured. But copper definitely was one of the things that was valuable and, and important. Yeah, um, I, I had an interview, uh, which by the time this interview is, is uploaded onto the podcast, uh, my interview with Louise Hitchcock will have um, also been um, uploaded as well. 
and listeners will have had a chance to listen to the Amar uh, about the Amarna letters, and this is a series of of diplomatic exchanges between the king uh, or possibly kings um, of Cyprus and and all the other major regional powers at the time. And I always found it interesting that the king of Alashia, the king of Cyprus, asks the pharaoh for silver, uh, you know, and uh, the other the other kings, on the other hand, the other regional kings, they ask for gold. Am I to take away that silver was just um, slightly more difficult to 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 source um, and that's why the king of Alashia would have asked for that um, from the king of Egypt no I think I think this was a, a message in disguise he was uh, you know uh, these letters um, speak of an exchange of gifts so I'm sending you as a gift so much copper please send me back as a gift the other letters they ask as a gift gold the Cypriot king reminds the, um, the pharaoh that he has sent him timber and asks him to send him silver. I think what he's asking for is payment. So, and payments were done in silver. So I think this is, uh, he's, uh, he's asking for a gift, but in fact, he's asking for, to be paid for the timber he has sent. You know, Egypt did not have uh, timber, so, Egyptians would have to import timber, and the main uh, sources for timber would have been Lebanon, we know from sources, Cyprus, and Crete. Um, So I think this is what this shows, that he's really asking to be paid for for the timber he has sent. And if anyone is interested in uh, learning more about the Amarna letters and those Bronze Age um, diplomatic exchanges, um, you can check out the episode with Louise Hitchcock. But in the meantime, focusing on copper, uh, I'm very curious as to why, ironically, only three copper oxide ingots have actually been found in Cyprus. So what, what accounts for its conspicuous absence on Cyprus? This is uh, this is uh, actually one of the reasons why, when they started discussing where these copper ingots were produced, Cyprus was not the obvious first uh, choice. Um, but we have to remember that fragments of such ingots have been found in a number of other sites. So we don't have complete ingots, but we do have um, we do have a lot of fragments or a lot a number of fragments in different sites. I think that. We haven't, you know, I suppose from other podcasts that in Cyprus, we haven't really found a palace. We haven't found official storage spaces where such uh, ingots may have been stored. Uh, Crete is, is really an exception where we have they've been found several ingots in storage on land. Um, to give you another example, even Sardinia, where you have oxide ingot fragments in more than 40 sites all over the island, only has produced three complete ingots. So the, the, ingot, the complete ingots were meant to be broken up, melted, and turned into artifacts. So the only reason you would find complete ingots is if you found a storage room that for some reason was destroyed or abandoned suddenly. And they didn't have they didn't have the chance to to work these ingots. So they either 
ship the complete ingots abroad, and this is where we find them in shipwrecks, or they use them. And um, unfortunately, the three that have been found, uh, one was found in the excavations of the British Museum in 1898. So really not, they hadn't even realized that they were excavating uh, Bronze Age site. Um, the, the other two were from clandestine excavations, so they were sold in the antiquities market. So we don't know the context of this complete ingot, but I think this is the explanation. We haven't found storerooms of, of, a, of a, let's say, a palace or something that would have kept these ingots, but we do find um, fragments, so they were using, breaking them up and using them. I want to circle back to the oxhide shape. I mean, it is a peculiar shape for 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 copper um, to be fashioned in that way. Uh, I suppose I have two questions here. Um, why the oxide shape, and um, was copper traded in other shapes uh, apart from just the uh, oxide? Uh, yes, and and just I would like to circle back also for a second to say that in Cyprus we haven't found completing it other than the three but we have a lot of uh, displays of oxide ingots in the art, in the artifacts. So it, it's obvious that it was part of, of the culture and it was widely used. We have a god standing on an ingot, a, a goddess standing on an ingot. So these would be bronze uh, sculptures, uh, idols, showing uh, a deity standing on an ingot. We have... Um, bronze stands that depict men carrying ingots. We have depictions of ingots on cylinder seals. So the, the shape, and, and you don't find this anywhere else, perhaps only in Egypt, where you have um, displays of goods being brought to the palace. And among them, uh, you have the um, people, men carrying ingots. Now, the, the oxide ingot shape as I said, appears in the late Bronze Age, then disappears, never to be used again. We don't know why it had been initially uh, suggested that perhaps it was imitating an ox hide because the value was the same as an ox, but now this is, uh, is not uh, really accepted. Um, and it, the fact is that copper in the same period and even Cypriot copper was traded in other shapes as well. And we know this because we were very um, lucky that a shipwreck was found off the coast of Turkey at Uluburu. This was an amazing, extraordinary find. It's, it's, a, it's thought to be a royal ship that was, that was uh, loaded with all sorts of um, raw materials and goods, including, as I said, 354 oxide ingots. But there were also more than 100 uh, uh, planoconvex ingots, so like disc-shaped, um, which were also made of Cypriot copper. And then there were other ingots, some of them not of Cypriot copper. So there, were a, there was a wide um, choice of shapes. The Cypriot copper that we know up to now in the Bronze Age was traded into two, the oxide shape and the planoconvex shape. Why they, they, they used two different shapes? Perhaps it was the weight. The oxide ingots were 
almost, um, they were 25 kilos to 29. The bun ingots, these uh, panoconvex ingots were about six to 10. So they were a smaller shape, much easier uh, to trade, much easier to, to carry. The idea of the oxide ingots is that they were a shape that was suitable for uh, carrying on boats. They were not. They were very heavy. They're not very easy. Thirty kilos is quite a, a, a large load. But if it's on boats, then it's easy to 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 stack and to. And the Uluburun actually showed how this would have been uh, stacked. So, but then it it, it stops uh, after the 11th century. This this uh, shape of ingot is no longer used. So it is really a mystery that we don't fully understand. So scholars now, they, they dismiss this idea that it's supposed to look like the hide of an ox. Um, are we then to just suppose that it was fashioned in this way simply to facilitate trade and no other reason? Uh, there's no religious subtext to the design of this oxide ingot the way the way it was designed? No, no, there's, I don't, yes, I don't think there's a religious, also because the earlier ones don't really look like an oxide. They don't have these protruded um, ends. So um, this was only an idea by archaeologists, not that something that, it was a suggestion that kind of, and a name that kind of caught on. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, I want to shift gears a little bit here and just talk about how copper was was sourced in Cyprus. And I suppose my I want to start off by asking, um, how did the ancient miners actually know where to find copper-rich minerals on Cyprus? So we know from, uh, you know, a lot of archaeology bases its um, interpretations and understandings on ethno-archaeology. So looking at how people... Modern societies do this and, and look for ore deposits. We know, for example, that uh, certain plants may be used because they like to grow in areas where a certain, or they, they can survive uh, in areas uh, where other plants would not. Uh, in Cyprus, the ore deposits are not very deep. And the top part of the ore deposit, which was exposed to the surface, uh, oxidized to form very brightly colored gossans. This is the, the, the geological term. It, the gossan is the cover of the copper ore deposit, which is basically um, rich in iron, um, iron oxides and other iron uh, minerals, which are yellow and red. And these um, are also known as ochres. Uh, and there's also umbers, which is, this is the U-M-B-E, not the A-M-B-E. Uh, umber is the, terra umbra is the brown color. And um, in Cyprus, as elsewhere, these, these colors were used already from the earliest prehistory um, as pigments. So they knew of these areas. And eventually, when they realized that in the same areas and below these deposits, you would have um, the minerals that were rich in copper, then they could go reverse and, and search for these bright yellows and reds and then dig under them to find the copper deposit. Now, so while we have evidence of, rather, while we understand how the ancients identified and sourced copper, what is 
what is our evidence of copper activity um, and mining activities? Uh, I've, in your work, I've read a lot about these things, these things called slag heaps. And, you know, admittedly, I had to kind of do some more reading to, to understand what that is. But maybe you can tell listeners what what slag heaps are and how archaeologists today are able to identify ancient mining activities. If we step back again, uh, there's two steps in the production of metal. First is the mining, where you, you dig in the ground and you remove the ore. Ore is a mineral from which you can extract a metal. So a copper ore is a mineral where copper from which a copper can be produced. So the first step is to, is to mine. And, and where you find ore deposits, we said already that they look for this uh, oxide of, of iron and, and look under them. When they, take out the, when they take out the ore, then they need to smelt it. This means that they need to uh, first crush it and then put it into furnaces, which were small and made out of clay. Um, and they would use bellows to raise, to bring air into the furnace, to raise the temperature to around 1,200 degrees. It's really very high. Think that your oven at home works to uh, 250. So they wanted 1,200 degrees. And at this temperature, everything melts, but also uh, they, they add charcoal for, to raise the temperature, but also for the chemical reactions that are needed. And the end result of this process is the metal that has been extracted, so that has um, been freed from all the other elements, and all the other elements uh, join together and melt and, and create what is called slag. So slag is the waste product of the smelting process. And it's at 1200 degrees, it's molten, it, it's a liquid. And it's a liquid that floats on top of the, of the copper, which is also liquid, but it's heavier. So what they did is that they, they pierced the furnace and let the slag um, tap out, run out. And that's why slag looks like molten lava. And in fact, chemically and, and mineralogically, it's the same as lava. But instead of being molten in a, in a volcano, it's molten in a human furnace, so it's a human waste product. Now this uh, slag uh, is a waste product that they could not do anything with it. So wherever there is a smelting process or wherever there is a, a production site, you have slag. And near ore deposits, because they didn't want to move, and remember that they didn't have trucks and other mechanical means. So they did the smelting right next to the mines. So where they, and it smelted, they threw away the slag, and eventually this forms huge heaps. In Cyprus, it's been calculated that there's four million tons of ancient slag. In one area in Skuriotisa, the slag heap is 25 meters high and about half a kilometer long. It's one of the largest uh, from antiquity. So in modern times, when they wanted to find um, an ore deposit, when they wanted to uh, start a modern mine, what they did is that they started looking for these slag heaps because they knew that where there is a slag heap, once there was an ancient mine behind. 
someone who's not in this industry wouldn't imagine that there'd be so much waste and byproduct in, in extraction. Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, but it, it does make sense, of course. And it gives you the scale. This four million tons. You, you can imagine how many people worked to, to produce this. In one smell, one um, furnace, let's say in the Roman period, would produce 50 kilos. Can you imagine four million tons? How many smelting furnaces? How many people that were working? And of course, um, these are the waste product of the smelting. They are indirect evidence of mining. When modern mining started, and they started working underground initially, like the ancients, not with the open cast method, they found the galleries, so the, 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 what the ancients had dug, uh, they found them. And within those, uh, because the, the atmosphere in the underground is such, um, organic materials are very well preserved. They don't, uh, they don't disintegrate. So they found baskets and ropes and tools of the ancient miners. So we have the evidence of ancient mining and we have the evidence of ancient smelting. The smelting is much more extensive. Out of curiosity, are these located in, um, on display possibly in any museum or are they kind of tucked away in the, uh, you know? In the, Unfortunately, uh, at the moment, they are tucked away. They used to be a, a small exhibit in the Cyprus Museum dedicated to metallurgy and some of these objects were on display but it, it has been taken down. But I'm sure you have heard that there's a new Cyprus Museum being designed uh, and, and the, the, the copper will have a prime uh, role and, and, and all these things will, will be put on display for, for everyone to see. In these mines, these ancient mines, presumably it would have been a very dangerous industry. What sort of what sort of dangers did miners face in antiquity in in establishing these mines and digging underground through uh, through the earth? Well, it, it was a very difficult and very uh, dangerous profession. Uh, first of all, uh, it was a, a very laborious uh, process. Uh, in the Bronze Age, they would use stone tools as well as, as bronze tools. Later on, they would use iron to dig in and go down. There were many issues that they had to face. First of all, um, the, the air. So if they went too deep, then there would not be enough oxygen. Uh, so they would have to dig and, and create drafts so that air would reach all the way down to where they were working. It would have been very dark. Remember, there's no electricity. The only source of light would have been uh, small oil lamps. Um, and the other, uh, and also, but that meant that some of the oxygen is consumed by the fire of the lamps. And also gases were, uh, would be produced and perhaps explosions would happen because of, of the fire and the gases that were there. And the other main problem that they had to face is that if they dug too far down, then they would reach the water table. That meant that the mine would flood um, and, and then they would drown. So it, it took a lot of, uh, of effort. And, um, and, and we know from mines in Spain, for example, that they used water wheels to, to drain the mine. Um, 
and and we have uh, a treatise from the 16th 16th century it's called from Agricola Iorius Agricola German who wrote about uh, the art of mining and metallurgy it was like a handbook and um, a lot of these methods are described uh, and even today you can see in the news from uh, modern mines that have been um, you know explosions or collapsing right. uh, walls it, it would have been the same and worse it was not a, an easy profession and in fact um, we don't know about the bronze age but later on where we have texts we know that it was slaves that used to work in the mine and it was not a very uh, easy life uh, no, and actually, you you just you just took the next question out of my out of my mouth. <laughs> I, I I presumed that it was um, slaves that were working in these mines because of the the dangerous conditions that that existed. But um, yeah, you just answered the question that we we don't know what it was like in the Bronze Age necessarily. No. Now, some of the other challenges, um, and and you alluded to this at the start of the of this recording, is that it, the modern mining has destroyed sort of that landscape that um, archaeologists could have used to sort of determine what extraction would have looked like. Um, and we have what's what's called the disappearance of adits that have transformed to large artif- artificial lakes. So um, what what are adits exactly? Uh, you also mentioned uh, galleries. Um, just trying to wrap my head around some of these. Um, these Terminology, yeah. So, it's, it's, so um, basically, the easiest way to think about them is like tunnels, okay? So a gallery is, a, is, is a, a tunnel underground that is perpendicular, not perpendicular, parallel to the surface of the ground. And added is, is a tunnel that starts from the edge. Let's say if you have the edge of a, of a cliff and you go into the cliff in an inclination. So it's a tunnel, really, that goes in. They also have to... Um, to dig shafts. Shaft is like a well, so a perpendicular rounded uh, cut into the rock that goes all the way down to the, uh, and then they go perpendicularly down to uh, from a shaft, and then they open up to a gallery, so a horizontal tunnel. So, and they did this already from, they knew how to do this already, if not in Cyprus, we don't have evidence, but in uh, other areas, we know that they were digging quite deep let's say in the Neolithic times, to find um, chert and flint. So they were, well, they were well acquainted with how they had to do this. And they knew that if they went too deep and there was not enough uh, air going down, that they couldn't work. So perhaps they sunk, they dug extra shafts or extra tunnels to, uh, to uh, create drafts. Now, in the modern times, they started with tunnels, with galleries and adits, but eventually because there's explosions, explosives and large machinery, it was easier just to remove the whole mountain. So there's nothing left, really, only bits and pieces here and there. The amount of uh, wood, timber, that would, uh, that would be required in order to um, feed the furnaces, uh, I just, I'm imagining, and I might be mistaken, but that must have had an environmental impact on, on the landscape and on the environment. Do we have any evidence of, um, of an environmental impact? 
we it certainly had a huge impact because a lot of it was tenfold the amount of charcoal that they needed for to process the the, the, the minerals, um, and but and I believe that the end, which came at uh, in the seventh century A.D., may have come because they overdid it also with the with um, overworking the, um, the, the forests. Uh, we don't have the evidence to support this, mainly because in Cyprus we don't have, uh, one way of, of finding out would be the study of pollen um, through, from uh, stratified dated deposits. And if, if you have evidence of the drop in pollen from pine trees, for example, that would show that there was um, deforestation. Unfortunately, we don't have um, um, appropriate deposits that would enable us to show this, but this is one of my, the aims uh, for future research that I want to do in collaboration with others to try and, and see whether in fact, because uh, I think it would have been detrimental to the landscape. And, uh, and because we don't really know why it stopped, why they stopped producing, and I think that one of the, it, 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 it was definitely a, a different set or a combination, let's say, of reasons. And I think one of the reasons may have been the, the destruction of the forests. With the sort of, I hesitate to use the word, but for lack of a better word, I'll, I'll use it, the discovery of iron. Um, was there a decline in the production of copper or was there still a demand? Because if I'm not mistaken, I, I, I believe there was an increase in copper production, even in the archaic and classical ages. So was, first off, um, was there a decline in copper production um, with the discovery of iron? And did uh, copper production in the archaic and classical eras ever rival Bronze Age levels? Actually, you're very correct. In fact, uh, it was much uh, more intense in, in, in the archaic and classical period. So in the Iron Age onwards, um, we have slag heaps. One of the benefits of working with large-scale uh, survey projects, like the ones that uh, Bernard Knapp, um, started with the Sydney Cyprus project or the Trodos Archaeological Survey project, where I worked uh, on the slag heaps and on these deposits is that we recorded them and took samples and dated them. So we know that some of these very large, a lot of the very large ones date to the late antiquity, but a lot of them also date to the classical period. We don't have from the Bronze Age such large slag heaps. Of course, the problem perhaps for the, for the Bronze Age is that they were destroyed with the open cast mining. but. Um, when iron came into, uh, when they discovered iron and the technology of iron, uh, it didn't substitute copper. It substituted copper for some things, so for weapons or for tools. And some of the some um, archaeologists have called iron the democratic metal because it was um, available everywhere. They didn't need such complicated trading networks. They didn't need to mix it with something else. They could use it as it was. So they were no longer uh, dependent on complicated networks that were often um, on state level. But copper, iron could not substitute copper for everything. 
Uh, one thing that people perhaps don't realize is that um, in antiquity, they were not able to melt iron. Iron melts at, at 1,540 degrees. They, they were not able to reach this temperature. So iron could only be forged. So you can, and also you, everybody knows this, iron corrodes rapidly. So it was never, it could never be uh, a valuable metal. It could never be used to, to create uh, nice objects. It could never be used to create cast uh, sculpture, for example, like copper or other things. So um, when iron was discovered, it did take some of, of the objects that were made from copper, but copper continued to be used for all the other things, and it continued, and it was more valuable. We have, we have uh, economic uh, documents that tell us how much copper uh, cost, how much iron cost, and it was much more expensive than iron. So for Cyprus, when, I, when iron came, uh, iron technology uh, began, it did not really affect the Cypriot economy. It, it did not really um, um, bend the economy, let's say, or, or, uh, because copper was still needed. And it was needed in great um, amounts, in great numbers. This is why in, in late antiquity, we have a boom in, in technology because all the things that would have been made. I will give you only an example. The, um, the ships, the warships, the triremes uh, had, uh, um, I forget now the name in English, but it, the tip was made out of, of, uh, of bronze because in, in uh, naval battles, the triremes would crash into the other one to sink it. So we know that these were, they, they had a weight between 300 kilos and 500 kilos. Then uh, a ship also needed nails to, to put the, um, the wood together. So just for one ship, they would need more than 500 kilos of copper. Think of how many hundreds of ships yeah. took part in naval battles. Think of how many hundreds of ships uh, were used uh, for trade. Then think of uh, doors and other things that were made of, uh, of metal. Um, so copper was, and then of course, uh, after the discovery of uh, the invention of coinage, coins were initially made of silver and gold, but eventually these were too valuable. They needed uh, coins of smaller value. And this would have been copper coins. So in the Roman period, when they needed to pay the troops, they would pay them with copper coins. And I, I don't know if you've seen recently, there's been thousands and thousands of copper coins found in hordes. Um, mm -hmm. So there was a great demand for copper, even after the discovery of iron. I was hoping you could do me a favor and um, paint a picture uh, of, the, of the exact process and the steps that would have been taken from copper extraction from mining to refinement in the workshops. Are you able to kind of paint a picture of what this, what steps would be required in antiquity um, from its extraction to the production of a final product, let's say uh, in use of, um, of uh, 
some sort of figure, you know, let's say you're sculpting a figure, for example, what, what, were, what were those steps that you would have to take? Well, first, as I said, the first thing would be the, the digging out from the mine. Okay. So mining out. So these, they will have to break the, the, the minerals from, from the um, underground, uh, break them to smaller pieces, put them in baskets, bring them to the surface. On the surface, they needed to be crushed into finer uh, pieces. Then they would have to be put into furnaces. So a furnace would be a cylinder, a cylindrical structure, perhaps on the lower part built with stones that were lined with clay. And then they had like a chimney um, and, and they used um, uh, ceramic tubes, which are called two years, to enter, to, to introduce air into the furnace with bellows that they would work all the time. And, and you have to think of a process that would take several hours. So two or three, uh, four, persons, men probably, uh, that would work the bellows to raise the temperature. After this process was finished, you would have copper metal and slag that was thrown away. Then the copper metal would be cast into a standard shape of an ingot. And then this would be traded and it would be taken to a different workshop somewhere else in, in the city or in a village where a metalsmith would take this ingot of copper, melt it in a crucible, so a ceramic vessel that could withstand high temperatures, the copper needs 1,083 degrees, and melt it together with tin, mix it and melt it together with tin to form bronze, which lowers the melting temperature. They would have to form a mold where this molten metal would be cast, uh, and then break the mold to uh, reveal the finished object. So it was a multi-step and it was not done. So it was different people working the mines. Some of them would have been specialized engineers that you know, guided where they would dig, but you would have a lot of the slaves digging and, and being the, the labor. Then this would go into the smelting workshops where you had other people with other skills, very um, well experienced, because we know the processes in the Roman period, they only lost, they would lose in the slag less than 1%, so they were very efficient. And then you have other, uh, other uh, specialized craftsmen who would create the final object. If you're talking about the sculpture, then you have the sculptor who would first create the object in some other medium, perhaps clay, from which a mold would be made so that the copper would be cast. So it, it was yeah. a long process. That's amazing. Uh, I, I love that. Just to think of all the steps involved and the skill and the talent and the level of uh, advancement to, to go from point A to point B and C and so on and so forth. It's incredible. Hey, and this is why they were very good at recycling metal. It's not like us today that we need to make it make a point that people need to recycle. They recycled metal diligently because it took such an effort to produce it. And this is one of the reasons you don't find ingots, for example, other things. They, they would have been put to use 
and the objects would then be recycled. And, and in later periods, they would recycle again and again and again. So uh, a lot of, for example, the beautiful sculpture that uh, adorned uh, sanctuaries, pagan sanctuaries, once Christianity came, they were melted down and, and used to make something else. Right. So that's, the, that's the problem with metal. It, it, uh, it, it can be recycled and it can be used again and again. And they were recycling everything because it, it really took a lot of effort to produce it. Uh, now we have workshops and sanctuaries, um, including metallurgical workshops that were also found in association with the sanctuary of Aphrodite at Tamasos. And of course, you mentioned the copper god standing on the ingot. So was religion in any way intertwined in this copper industry? Yes and no. Uh, in the past, it had been suggested that uh, religious establishments and temples may have controlled the copper industry, but we really don't have any evidence for this. It is a fact that we have workshops in, in the premises of sanctuaries, and it is a fact that we have a god and a smaller goddess standing on an ingot. But this can also be explained in, in other ways, other than the religion being in charge of or controlling the production. Uh, obviously, if, if everything is based on copper, you really want your god to protect it. Uh, this is your livelihood. So, and of, of course, mining and going underground always had the taboo or, or that you're going in the guts of the earth and you're disturbing and don't forget that underground is where we bury our dead. So you're disturbing the land of the dead. So there's always a fear, let's say, of the divinity. And you need more than anything the, the help of the divinity. And in sanctuaries, um, you always have workshops anyway because the, the, the people who go to a sanctuary would want to dedicate an artifact, a sculpture whether it is from clay or stone or metal. So, so workshops were there so that you, like when you go to a, a Greek Orthodox church today and you, you buy a candle that you go and light in the church, it's provided for you there. It would have been the same with ancient sanctuaries. They provided with uh, the, 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 the faithful who went with objects that they could dedicate to the temple and of mm -hmm. course, they could then also manage the wealth of the temple. You have to imagine that temples became repositories of wealth. And this wealth was what was looted when uh, wars happened, because that's where all the, the wealth accumulated. So there was a connection, uh, but I don't think there was the connection that some earlier archaeologists had uh, uh, said about Cyprus of, of the temples controlling. We don't have evidence in Cyprus that like you have in other, in Egypt, for example, or um, Mesopotamia, of the temple being an administrative, uh, pay, paying an administrative role. In fact, we don't have such uh, evidence. It may have been, but the evidence we have so far does not support this idea in my mind. If again, listeners, if you have an opportunity to look at some maps of Cyprus, uh, again, I, I do have an Instagram page called the History of Cyprus uh, podcast, and I do my best to 
uh, put up some some pictures that corresponds to the episodes just to give listeners some context. Uh, and if you get an opportunity to look at some maps, please do, because where these cities are situated in antiquity is very, very important. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Cities like Enkemi in the Bronze Age, which is on the eastern shore of Cyprus, and later Salamis in the Iron Age, which is also on that area, uh, they were they were particularly particularly wealthy. Yet these cities, they were the fur- furthest from the copper mines. How did they maintain their wealth and power? Is this a situation of collaboration with other uh, city states, or is there a top down? Uh, imp- imposition of uh, power and and you know threat from you know stronger states. Well, the Bronze Age is very hard to tell, but I, I, if somebody looks at the map and 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 moves away a little bit, not just focusing on Cyprus, they will realize that Enkomi and Salamis are on the east coast, facing Syria and the Levantine coast, and that's where diachronically, so from the Bronze Age all the way to the Turkish invasion of 1974, where the most important port town of Cyprus exists. That's that's the, the place where uh, ships would arrive from uh, the ports of Syria and elsewhere, and that's where they would depart to go um, east. So those cities, Enkomi, was the most important city for sure in the Bronze Age. We don't know, there's there's a huge debate. Um, modern, current thought is that Cyprus was never under, um, just like in the Iron Age, it was broken up in, in polities, different polities, but they were perhaps united under a single king. We know the king, there's one king of Alashia, um, but, Definitely in the Iron Age, the, the island is broken up in city kingdoms, city states. Um, Salamis is one of them, and, and you correctly say that it does not have copper mines of its own in its vicinity. But we, as I said before, you cannot really use copper on its own. You need copper together with tin. If Enkomi in the Bronze Age, Salamis in the Iron Age was controlling the import of tin and the import of silver and the import of gold, which everybody wanted, um, then it would have been a a way of, uh, let's say, creating an important role in in this equation where, okay, I don't have copper mines of my own, but I am controlling what's coming in. So if you want your copper to go out uh, and if you want to buy some tin, then you need to work with me. So I think this is this is how things uh, work. It's so refreshing to to have these conversations. Uh, in in the past, uh, Cyprus was painted as being a, a passive player in Mediterranean politics, and you know even even copper production was at some point credited to foreign elements. And it's incredibly refreshing to appreciate how scholarship has refuted this. Uh, Cyprus was anything but passive. It was a very active, if if not leading, uh, member of those early Bronze Age uh, communities. And you know, seeing seeing how important copper was, and and continued to be throughout the um, Iron Age and later into the Archaic and Classical Ages, uh, shows just how important Cyprus could be and was. 
it boggles the mind. Actually, I'm going to write, a, I'm, I'm taking part in a, a conference uh, this month, at the end of the month, on Phoenicians. When you read uh, literature from the 19th century, when people came first to, to look at the mines, even archaeologists of the time, they would talk about the Phoenicians uh, mining in Cyprus. And, you know, it, 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 it makes you wonder why they assumed that it would have been the Phoenicians that started the whole thing. Right. And now know that everything started much before the Phoenicians appeared on the scene. So uh, yes, and and the the role of Cyprus is very clear. The, the important role. Uh, you mentioned the Amarna letters. Um, if we just say here as well, in case somebody doesn't hear the other podcast, the Amarna letters. Amarna is the capital of the king of the Pharaoh Akhenaten, who was a heretic king, a, a heretic pharaoh who left and and built a new. A city, Amarna, uh, and when he died, that was abandoned. So we know that what was found in Amarna is related to his reign and or perhaps that of his father before. And they, there, an archive of letters was found that were sent. These are letters that are were sent to the pharaoh from other uh, um, kings and princes, princesses from the region. And um, some kings call the pharaoh my brother, so they are at equal standing. And some princes uh, and kings of smaller states call the pharaoh father because they are of lower standing. Now, the king of Alashia is in this elite club that calls the pharaoh brother. So you have this small island, uh, and, and you have to think, to realize that Egypt at that time was the almighty, they had, they were, it was the richest of everybody. They had wealth beyond anybody's reach. So for Cyprus, for the king of Alasia to, to have the nerve to call the pharaoh of Egypt, <laughs> right. brother, yeah. uh, it, it just showed uh, it, he, he had something to offer. And, and, and uh, the pharaoh of Egypt had abundant mines of gold but he still needed copper and he still needed the copper from Cyprus. And obviously he also needed the timber because we, we have this information that, uh, you know, I need the silver for the timber I've sent you. So Cyprus was important and, and there's nothing to suggest that this was in anybody else's hands than, than the, uh, the population or, or the local culture. Of course, having said that, after the Bronze Age, we know that Cyprus is always under the rule of the great powers that rule the region. So whether it was Egypt, the Assyrians, the Persians, but the kings of Cyprus still had power over their land and they had economic power over their land. So they paid tribute to whoever was in, in, in charge, the Assyrians or the Persians, but they could do their own, uh, they thrived and in fact, the Cypriot kings of the Iron Age, we know from ancient texts, uh, from Greek ancient texts, they were very wealthy. They were uh, quite extravagant. And all this wealth uh, came from copper. Right. And, and, and not only that, uh, Cyprus um, didn't collapse in the Bronze Age. It actually continued to thrive in many, in many cases. 
um, which of course, uh, having, having spoken with Maria Yakovu, uh, you know, you learn about how Cyprus is usually grouped in with the rest of the, um, of the Bronze Age communities and, and is said to have suffered the same calamities and the same disasters. And yet Cyprus did, did survive. And-, and, and the other thing that we forget, um, in, in antiquity, Cyprus would have been a naval power, something that's not the case at the moment. And at the moment, again, uh, with shipping, it's, it's a center for shipping, but the Cypriot's connection with the sea is not that strong. But in antiquity, it would have been a naval power. So it was an island, and, and, the, and these kingdoms had ships and they had fleets. In fact, when uh, Alexander the Great went to Tyre, it was the Cypriot king's fleet that helped him uh, win there against the Phoenicians who were allies of the Persians. So um, Cyprus was a power in its own, uh, of course, not in the scale of the Persian Empire, but still for its own scale, it it was a a force to be reckoned with. And, And I do take pride also. (laughs) <laughs> of course. Uh, Lena, thank you um, so much. This was a really fantastic episode. Uh, and and I, I know listeners will appreciate uh, understanding and learning more about the copper industry and not just the, the, the trade networks that existed and how it was used to you know, leverage their position, but how the actual the actual extraction and, and, the, and the, the identification of these sites and the dangers and and how it was it was produced is is incredible, and I think incredibly valued part of this of this narrative, this whole story here. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm 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 always very happy to share uh, my research, and I think what you're doing is very important because often we forget uh, and and share this information between ourselves. Uh, and it's in fact uh, important to have a wider audience uh, and, and I think this idea of a podcast is brilliant so thank you for doing this thank you so much Lena I hope you have a great okay. evening alright bye bye bye, bye. bye.